All right, if you want to open your notes there to uh, session two. Session two, we're going to begin just with a few minutes, um, just providing a brief overview on the issue of transgenderism. Now, I want to say, as we turn to think through the experience of transgenderism, it's crucial for us to remember that we we are not simply discussing issues. Um, At at the center, at the heart of this conversation are people. Precious men and women made in the image of God that have just as much value as any of us do. Perhaps some of you in this room, uh, you're having to navigate this with a child or family member. Uh, Maybe you personally are wrestling with these things. And it's important for us to kind of make the distinction. There are those who experience these desires and fully embrace them. There are those who experience these desires and they're just afraid to be honest about them. There are those who experience these desires and they really wish they didn't. They would love to not be struggling with these desires, but they don't know what to do about it. And there have been many, unfortunately we have to say this, there have been many people who have been mistreated and sinned against from the church because they struggle with things that maybe a lot of us don't struggle with. So all that to say, I think we need to think through these things carefully, uh, biblically. We need to converse about them in kind, compassionate ways. Christians must speak the truth, but we always speak the truth in love and with compassion. Um, I don't think I mentioned this a while ago. On the back of your notes, I've given you quite a lengthy resource list a lot, a lot of good stuff, much smarter men and women than I am that have written on these topics. Uh, a lot of these resources, I'm not, I've not read through all of them word for word, so this isn't 100% endorsement of everything that you're going to read and all these resources. But uh, several of these were very, have been very influential in my thinking on these uh, issues over the years, so I hope that you'll uh, take advantage of those. But uh, one book that was phenomenal that's on that list is by Andrew Walker. He's a professor at Southern Seminary. In his book, God and the Transgender Debate, uh, he argues that there are a few terms that are important for us to know when thinking through the gender identity revolution that we presently find ourselves in. And I've provided those terms for you uh, on a separate handout that you can reference there in your own time. But uh, Dr. Walker, he observes in his book that up until the, last, the past decade or so, gender has always been attached to sex. So, in other words, a person's biological sex and their self-understanding as male and female have been in alignment for centuries of human history. And this understanding, it's, it's even recognized in the fact by what's common for us today, gender reveal parties, Right? We, we have had those in our own family. 
And uh, these parties are based on the fact that the gender of the baby is connected to the sex of the baby as revealed in the ultrasound. So even common things in our culture still speak to this reality that gender and sex are, are connected. They're in alignment. Now, the, w- the way that gender is expressed, that varies depending on the culture you're in, where you find yourself in the world. And the example that Dr. Walker gives in his book is from the movie Braveheart. Has anybody ever seen the movie? Yes, I see those hands. Wonderful movie. So, so in our context, a kilt reminds us of what? A skirt, yes. It reminds us of a skirt. And we associate a skirt with being female, right? But if you go to Scotland, a kilt is not interpreted as feminine. Rather, it's interpreted as a sign of masculinity, of manhood. So this, this is just a really, really, really small example that gender is expressed differently depending on where you find yourself in the world, depending on what culture you're from. Uh, but Dr. Walker goes on to note that what has changed today is that many now see gender as unattached to sex. That is, you don't just express gender differently. The argument is you can be a different gender. So the present argument is that gender can be separated from the biological reality of your body. So in other words, gender has more to do with how you think and with how you feel and how you perceive yourself to be. Thus, we now have the term gender identity. And you can see that on your definition list on that separate page. Uh, Gender identity, it's an individual's personal sense of identity, either male or female, masculine or feminine. Uh, There are also individuals that say they are both male and female at the same time. Others say that they experience neither one of these binaries. And maybe to state the obvious, we all have a gender identity, right? For most of us, our gender identity aligns with our biological sex. There are those whose gender identity does not align with their biological sex. Now, I would encourage you just to stop and think for a moment what it must be like to not feel at home in your body. The amount of suffering and turmoil that could accompany that if you feel trapped in the wrong body and how hard and difficult of a situation and experience That would be. Maybe just for a moment we could grasp, we could get a sense of the mental distress and anguish that must accompany such an experience. And this is where the term gender dysphoria comes from. It's been used to describe the uh, the psychological turmoil, the mental distress that comes as a result of someone's perceived gender being out of sync with their biological sex. Now, it's important for us to make the distinction here. Not all individuals actually express or live according to what they perceive themselves to be. So in other words, what I'm saying is an individual may be a biological male. 
he may feel like he's a female, yet he's still trying to live in alignment with his biological sex. There are others who say their gender identity doesn't align with their biological sex, and they're just embracing that gender identity and living according to it. So these are important distinctions for us to make. There are those who feel this struggle, but they are still seeking to live according to their biological sex. So in in that situation, someone who's experiencing misalignment with their physical body but not living according to it, I think that's where the term gender dysphoria would be applied. But then the term transgender is often applied to someone who is saying, yep, what I feel is what I am. I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to live that out. Does that make sense? Those two, those two distinctions. So, <clears throat> how should we think through this? How should we respond to this? And I, I want to say, when I, these, these next few points, my goal for them is, is for them to be like anchor points for your thinking, okay? I'm not saying this is a list that you set down. If you know someone struggling with this, you sit down and you just blaze it at them, you know, and think that you've done your job. I, that's not what this list is for. Lord willing, I want them to be anchor points for your thinking to help you stay in the path of God's word as you're having many conversations because they can be very confusing, yeah? You can feel lost pretty quickly. And there's, honestly, there's many more things we could, we could say, but I pray that these would be helpful for you. So first, we must think biblically. We must think biblically. And because of what we know about the corrupting nature of sin, we need to recognize that gender dysphoria can be an actual experience that someone struggles with. This can be a genuine experience. All of our being, body and soul, is impacted and corrupted by sin. This includes how we think and how we feel. I referenced Jeremiah 17, 9 earlier. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And I think it's safe to say this is what I was, uh, I think in reference to your question, Greg, what I was saying earlier, I think it's safe to say there are many who struggle with gender dysphoria not just because they are simply choosing to do so. Right? Because, like I said earlier, we aren't born choosing how we're going to be tempted as we live out our experience in this world. Which is why if someone who's genuinely struggling with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, it can be so hurtful to hear someone say, well, it's just a choice. It can come across as so harsh and non-compassionate. If you're genuinely wrestling with these things and you're not just simply choosing, right? We all know what it's like to struggle with unwanted desires. We all know what that's like to some degree or another. And again, the the choice, I believe, comes in how we're going to respond to those desires, 
to those temptations, to those thoughts. And I would also encourage you, like, these desires should not be suppressed. They should not be ignored. Rather, they need to be brought into the light. They need to be discussed biblically. They need to be confessed to God. Why? Because He is the only one who can cleanse, who can forgive. He is the only one who has the power to change thoughts and change desires. Second, we need to remember the tactics of Satan and sin that we just discussed there in our first session. Just as he twisted and distorted and lied about God's word to Adam and Eve, friends, he is still doing the same thing today through our culture. Satan promises good that ultimately leads to death. And the transgender agenda says that freedom, happiness, joy is found in following your own thoughts and feelings and bringing your physical body into alignment with what you're thinking and with, with, with what you're feeling. The world will say, your body is the problem, not your perception of it. I think as Christians, we need to lovingly say, your body is not the problem. The problem is, is how we are perceiving the body that God has given to us. Does that make sense? Happiness, friends, is not found by living according to what's right for you, right? We've all heard things like follow your heart, be true to yourself. If you have watched the Disney Channel for five minutes, it's in cartoons, it's in movies, it's on clothing, it's on songs. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. The list goes on and on and on and on. And it sounds good, doesn't it? Who doesn't want to hear that? But then, in stark contrast, stands Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? So friends, we must be careful to expose, to identify and expose these lies for what they are. They're just modern day versions of Satan's false narrative from the garden. And man, they sound good. They sound appealing. But friends, we must lovingly help our children, our grandchildren, our church family. We must help them learn to discern between what sounds good and what is actually true according to the Bible. Does that make sense? We have to think so very carefully about what sounds good and what is actually true according to the Bible. To God's word. Consider Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its way is the end of death. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on what? Your own understanding. Friends, we're made in God's image and we're made for Him. Satan promised Eve that to eat the fruit would make her like God. And we know the result of that. And God lovingly warns us in his word over and over and over again 
about the deceptiveness of the world, of our own sin, and Satan. Third, we must remember this is a battle of authority. This is a battle of authority. Who is the ultimate authority? Is it God or is it going to be my feelings? Or is it going to be my thoughts? Who gets to decide right from wrong? The creator or the creature? Will we submit to our feelings and our perception of things? Or will we submit to God and his word and entrust our disordered desires to a good father who has our good and our best in mind? Friends, the message of the Bible is consistent over and over and over. Things do not go well when we make ourselves Lord over our own lives. Jeremiah 17 again, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. Fourth, we need to understand that, friends, this is not a hopeless situation. It is not a hopeless situation. We're going to speak more on this in a minute. But because of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, the corruption and the brokenness of sin does not have the last word. That's good news, amen? And for those who repent of their sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation, forgiveness, new life, new power, new love, all these things are available in Christ Jesus. And again, we're going to talk about that more in just a few minutes here. So, and, and I intentionally uh, kind of guided this next section towards, like, how do you respond if your children come to you? And I, there, there's many different directions we could go with this, with how we can respond. But I, I stuck with coming from the standpoint of, say, one of our children or grandchildren or teenagers comes to us because I feel like they are some of the ones that are most under attack right now with this agenda. So what do you do if your child comes to you and says, I'm, I'm struggling with these things? Or I think... I may be transgender. Or I think I may be same-sex attracted. I think this is Roman numeral three uh, there in your notes. As Christians, we must respond with wisdom and compassion. Wisdom and compassion. And I'm sorry in advance for maybe the rapid-fire nature of this, so if you want to circle back to anything, uh, we can cer certainly do that. But first, in that moment when someone comes to you, whether it's your child, someone in your church, I believe it's important first to thank them. Thank them. Thank them for their honesty about what they're struggling with. Friends, we all know very well it is not easy to confess something that you are struggling with to someone else especially if you're unsure how that person is going to respond. Has anybody ever been there before? And so we thank them. 
Thank you for your honesty and transparency and for willingly telling me. You can say, I believe it was God's gift of grace to you to be willing to say something to me and share this information. And also, how we respond in those initial moments, friends, is so important. It's so important. So I would encourage you to ask yourself, do your reactions and responses to your children invite confession? Do your reactions and your responses to your children invite confession? My counseling professor says it this way. I love it. It applies not only in the counseling room, but here as well. He says, we need to learn how to balance, how to make it safe to be wrong, yet clearly point out what is wrong. Okay? How to balance to make it safe to be wrong, but yet clearly point out what is wrong. And what he means by that is, safe does not mean go do whatever you want, it's all good. Safe means if someone divulges something to you, What's your first response going to be? Is it anger? Is it snapping? Like, I can't believe this. Do you, do you know how this makes me feel? That is, that is not a safe place for someone to come and respond or confess something deep that they're struggling with. So by God's grace, we need to learn how to balance, how to make it safe to be wrong, how to listen well and listen calmly but yet also lovingly pointing out what is wrong. Encourage them that it's good and right to bring their confession to God. He cares about what they're going through, about what they're experiencing, and he is a good father. He is a good father. He alone has the grace, the forgiveness, the help that they need. So we can encourage them, go to God. Confess to God. Next, we need to ask good questions and listen to their story. Ask good questions and listen to their story. Now, why do we do this? Because we know what the Bible teaches about how our hearts are corrupted. We know that a fallen world is seeking to influence our kids and raise them according to worldly wisdom. We know that because of sin, our kids can suffer greatly at the hands of other people. And so we need to ask good questions and listen to their story. Proverbs 18.13 says, The one who gives an answer before he hears, it is his shame and folly. If we start spouting off answers... And we're all guilty of this. If we start answering before we hear, we're only going to add foolishness and shame to the situation. And for someone who is deeply struggling, that is the last thing by God's grace that we want to put on top of them. So we ask good questions and we listen. We listen carefully. What are they experiencing? What are they thinking? What are they feeling? Where did those ideas come from? Where did they hear certain words? Who or what is influencing them? 
Who are the major voices in their life? We must ask good questions. And I think it's safe to say that many who have embraced transgenderism are not just doing so to simply live in outright rebellion against God. I think we need to think very carefully about this. There are many who are pursuing a transgender lifestyle because they think it provides hope, joy, acceptance. They think it may provide relief from some deep pain that they have been carrying that maybe no one else knows about. They're looking for meaning, for identity. We can have a lot of good desires that aren't sinful in and of themselves, but we can look to places outside of God to try and meet those desires. Does that make sense? And I think the same is true for many individuals who may consider themselves to be transgender. I'm not saying there aren't those who are just living middle finger to God and saying, I'm going to do what I want. There are certainly those people out there as well. A small example, I was listening to <clears throat> a talk and the, the speaker was sharing the story about this. It was a transgender man, so a biological female. And she had been severely sexually abused by her uncle when she was a little girl. She had carried that pain with her in secret for a long time and finally got to the place where she thought the only way that I could ever protect myself from being abused by another male is to become a male. So you can see there can be, this, that's just one small example, friends. There can be many, many people who have such deep pain and suffering in their life and they're just looking for a way to relieve it and they think maybe this is the answer. So this is another reason why, friends, we've got to ask questions. We've got to listen to their story. As parents, one of my counseling professors said this. This is a, this is a hard one. As parents, we need to be just as concerned to learn what our children are thinking as we are about teaching them. We need to be just as concerned to learn about what our children are thinking as we are about teaching them. One of my favorite pastors says, if you can't say amen, say ouch. <laughs> so draw out what's going on in their heart by asking good questions, listening carefully. And as you draw out those desires and thoughts, then by God's grace, you can begin to help them analyze them according to God's word. Perhaps you can help them learn what it means to put off, this is all Ephesians 4 language, put off sinful thoughts and desires, to seek God's forgiveness, and to seek his help in putting on righteous alternatives in their place. Of course, you don't have to go through these things alone. You can seek your, your pastor or a trusted counselor in your area as well. Another thing, thirdly, another crucial and necessary response is, friends, you must parent. You must 
parent. God in his sovereign plan has placed your children in your care. Ephesians 6.1 tells us we have a responsibility to raise our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Part of the instruction piece is we must teach, guide, instruct our children. They need to be taught what the Bible has to say about God creating us, about being made in his image, about the corruption, the dangers, the influences of sin in their own hearts. They need to hear their need of a Savior. If you already have kids that are out of your house, people in your church need to hear this as well. You can come alongside other parents. And it, it, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? We, we live in a culture right now where it's not popular to parent. <laughs> It's not popular. It's at, some would even say it's not right for the parent to be the authority in the home. But friends, we must parent. We must recognize the culture is actively and aggressively seeking to train up and teach our children. So in other words, if you don't disciple your kids, someone else will. And by God's grace... I heard a counselor say this, by God's grace, we need to be the first voice that they hear on these issues. We need to be the first one to speak. It's not always going to play out that way, but that's a good principle to keep in mind. I want to be the first voice that my children hear speak about these things. So friends, this, this is another hot topic, and we, we can certainly talk about it more in the Q&A Uh, What this means is if you have a child that's not an adult still living under your roof, they do not get to choose their own pronouns. We don't let 8 and 10 year olds drive a car, have sex with whoever they want to, yet we have 8 and 10 year olds being allowed to decide their gender decide how they're going to dress. Friends, we need to parent. And we need to do so with love and grace. Fourthly, lovingly teach your kids that they are under authority. They're under authority. First, under God's authority. And second, under your authority. Our children need to be taught that their desires do not rule the day. But they also need to know that God can be trusted. That God is good They need to know that God is a loving Father who cares about what they're going through and what they're feeling, and He invites them to come to Him. If they're experiencing homosexual desires or gender dysphoria, they need to know these feelings are not from God, but they're from their fallen heart. But at the same time, they need to hear God is the very one that they can and they should run to. He is the only one that can help them. And he can, friends, we need to hear this too, God can be trusted over our own feelings. God can be trusted over our own feelings. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true, and he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So based on the authority of God's word, we can lovingly tell our children, your body is not lying to you. Your body is not a mistake. 
It's not lying to you. Next, we also need to be patient and love them. Be patient and love them. Friends, we all know what it's like to live with disordered desires. We know what it's like to some degree to fight unwanted feelings and thoughts. And my goodness, how gracious has God been to us. How merciful has he been to me. And my struggles with unwanted desires and unwanted thoughts. So friends, we must demonstrate that same mercy. Actively communicate how much you love them. Actively communicate God's love for them in Jesus Christ. Actively communicate how his love is meant to transform their lives. Look for glimpses of God's image in them and call it out. Celebrate the good that you see in their life. Even if they full-on embraced the transgender lifestyle or homosexual lifestyle, they're still made in the image of God, and I promise you there are glimpses of that image in their life that you can recognize and call out and celebrate and say, you know, I see this in you. This is a reflection of your creator. It brings me joy to see these things. Our children need to know that they're not Yuck. (laughs) Because they struggle with these things. They need to know that they're not some worse sinner than mommy or daddy is. Or that anybody else in the church is. We should never embarrass someone. We should never call them names. We should never make them feel ashamed. Again, the doctrine of the image of God speaks to all of this. Not only in how they think of themselves, but in how we treat them with our words and with our actions. Just because they may struggle in ways that you don't does not mean that they are that much different than you. We have more alike, more in common than not. And mommy and daddy need Jesus just as much as they do. And friends, remember, our goal is not simply to, our goal is not simply behavioral change. So let's not get the order backwards, okay? Our goal is not just to get someone to live according to their biological sex. We're not primarily after behavioral change. Our goal is to point them to Jesus Christ, the one who can change their hearts. That's our ultimate goal. And friends, all true and lasting change in God's word flows from the experience of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. God's love transforms an individual. And true behavioral change flows out of first the heart, the new heart that Jesus has given them. That's what properly motivates new thinking, new desires, new behaviors. So lastly, the last Roman numeral there, Jesus is the giver of new life and new hope. We could talk about this section for a long time too. Uh, but I, I love that you see Jesus in the New Testament. As you see him, as you read about him, you actually see him moving towards the hurting. You see him moving towards the rebel. You see him moving towards 
the broken. He's moving towards the sufferer, the immoral person. He wasn't put off by them. He wasn't disgusted by them. He didn't agree with a lot in their lifestyle, but he moved towards them in compassion. He moved towards them, and he offered them new life, forgiveness, cleansing, hope. Jesus loves us enough that he was not content to leave us in our own sin. Thanks be to God for that. He came to earth, lived a perfect life without sin. He perfectly obeyed the Father. He, basically, he lived the life that Adam was supposed to live, but didn't. He lived the life that we could never live apart from him. Jesus faced our greatest enemy, and he experienced temptation and suffering and life in a broken world. See this in things like the temptation in the wilderness. Thanks be to God, Jesus was not deceived by the tactics and the lies of Satan. Further, he died the death we deserve to die, fully absorbing the wrath of God that we deserved, and he conquered the greatest enemy that we could not conquer when he rose from the grave. And all of that was so that every single human being that trusted in him could be offered the reality of a new creation, new life, new hope, new purpose, new meaning, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, being a new creation does not mean that all sin and suffering immediately ceases. But it does mean that one's slavery to sin is broken. It does mean that condemnation is no more. It does mean that God's forgiveness is real for that person. It does mean that the experience of sin and suffering and disordered desires is only temporary. It does mean that one now has the Spirit of God living within them to empower them to turn away from sinful thoughts and desires and walk in newness of life. Being a new creation does mean that one now has the power to begin thinking, desiring, living more and more and more in alignment with God and his word. Notice I said more and more and more in alignment. Friends, it's a process. It's what we call progressive sanctification. Being a new creation does mean that we have a sympathetic high priest who walks with us. He cares for us. And he will, friends, finish what he started in us. He knows what it's like to experience temptation. Yes, he didn't experience temptation from within because he was perfect and sinless, but he also experienced temptation to a point that we never have. Hebrews says to the point of shedding blood. None of us have experienced temptation and resisted it so strong and so long that we have shed our own blood, but our Savior has. That's one of the many reasons he can be a sympathetic and high priest. He knows what it's like. 
He is there to walk with us and care for us. Being a new creation does mean that the full promises of heaven now belong to us. And in that place, there will be no more struggle with disordered desires. We will have perfect, glorified bodies. Friends, the world and all of its secular counseling theories combined cannot touch what the church has in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world cannot touch the new life, the new power, the new hope, the new meaning that the gospel of Jesus Christ offers every single human being. There is hope and help for those who struggle with disordered desires. And his name is Jesus. And he is a faithful friend. And he's one that will complete the work that he starts in his children. And a struggle that may last a lifetime here on earth does not mean it's eternal. A struggle that may last a lifetime. Does God have the power to snap his fingers and we never struggle with homosexuality, transgenderism again? Absolutely he has that power. But he may not choose for someone to experience that after he saves them. But he does give them the power to turn away from those desires. Does that make sense? So important for us to understand. You see this in things like Galatians 5, the desires of the flesh against the desires of the spirit. Friends, the flesh never stops being the flesh. Even after Jesus regenerates us and gives us new life, the flesh never stops being the flesh. But man, do we have new power available to us, new resources. Notice what Paul says in Galatians 5. He says, if we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He doesn't say, once you're saved, you will no longer experience the desires of the flesh. What does he say? He says, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So in God's sovereign plan for some individuals who have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, the struggle with these desires may be a lifetime. But they can continually walk in more and more victory. They can grow stronger by God's grace in putting off those desires and thoughts when they do arise. Friends, it is a God-given promise to them. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That is the hope that we have available to offer people. And if that means, if, if, if that means they're going to struggle with that for the rest of their life, we can promise them, based on the authority of God's Word, your struggle may be a lifetime, but it's not eternal. And man, I think some people who struggle with these things that are born again, that are Christians, they have a greater hunger and desire for heaven than we often do. Because they're longing for the day when they see their Savior. They're longing for the day when they can be set free totally from these desires. We can understand that. 
we all have our different desires of the flesh that we're battling. I love the quote once more from uh, Dr. Walker there. I think I've got it in your notes. So the answer to the person struggling with gender dysphoria is the same as to the person struggling with any other product of the fall. There is hope, there can be change, and there will one day be total transformation. That is good news, isn't it? Now, uh, I realized that was quick, and that was a lot. So, what questions do you have? <laughs>